Alrighty. Hello and welcome to Pig Feels at Work. We're calling this episode Precious Energy for reasons that will become hopefully apparent. I have with me my guest this time, Heather Pickard, CEO of Shark in Melbourne. Hello, Heather. Hello, Graham. I'm going to call you Panther, which I normally do. So, hi, Panther. <laughs> it's great to be here. Really great to be here. Out of all my Zoom meetings today and big diary, uh, this is going to be my favourite one, I'm yeah. sure. This is, the feeling is very mutual. I can do my uh, spiel on what Shark is, but I reckon you'll do it better. So, do you want to tell our listeners what Shark's all about? Okay. So Shark's a self-help organisation that grew organically almost 30 years ago now and it stands for Self-Help Addiction Resource Centre, although in more recent times we see very much people in distress come into our space rather than necessarily putting them in a box of addictions or psychiatric diagnosis. Mm. I've been a resident of Shark. 26 years ago, I lived in one of the houses that Shark runs. You know, I was a registered nurse and I had fluctuating mental health conditions and addiction in my life and it so separated me from this idea of a life I wanted to live. So I looked, I'd done a lot of treatment and had a lot of psychiatrists and and I had a lot of diagnoses in my wheelbarrow, so I could tell you what was wrong with me, mm. but I had no ownership of it, yeah. um, and I was completely disconnected um, from myself, actually. And I entered this, at that time, very small community house, that's all Shark was then, and uh, began to slowly heal and and relinquish my hold on what was wrong with me, you know, in diagnostic terms, um, trained nurse, so I was very eager for people to tell me what was wrong with me. Yeah. And, they, you know, they didn't do that. <laughs> um, what they did, you know, was they brought me into community as a, a whole person and I started to come to understand myself as a person in distress who'd been in a barren environment internally and externally for a long, long time, and I needed a place that would allow me to heal with safety and not add any further shit to my wheelbarrow of diagnoses. <laughs> <laughs> so that was 26 years ago. Yeah, it was 26 years ago. And here you are now the CEO. Yes. Isn't that cool? That tells our listeners a heck of a lot about that organisation. <laughs> I think one of the things that Shark's extraordinary about is that we didn't grow as a box of services that fitted a, an alignment with government funding. We grew from a community of people who said something's missing in the system, let's uh, come together and see if we can create it. And, you know, the house that I lived in 26 years ago was exactly that, people who uh experience the system as uh, a barren place and wanted somewhere to be where community could be a comforting, supportive, normalising in some ways mm. place for people who had big feelings about life. Yes. For me, first time I came in to, to, to your place down in Carnegie, I just felt like I was home. Yeah. So it's got this just... As soon as you walk in, you know you're not in your standard 
service land. As you say, it's this place that came from the community itself. Mm, and and continues to. So so that was the residential services. But then the families came on board and, you know, they used to come around and dig gardens and <laughs> you know, help and run fates, you know, like help <laughs> And then they kind of went, you know what, if this can work so well for our kids, mm. why couldn't it work well for us who are also traumatised and, and experienced damage through the journey of a loved one? And so they, you know, families joined Shark Mm. and we just went marching on Parliament steps, you know, with signs (laughs) saying, you know, addiction is not stigma and people aren't just diagnoses. And and so, again, the community identified the need, found a champion. We always found really cool champions to help us form the strategy and then just go out there and just keep being out there and being a pain in the ass and just continuing <laughs> to um, represent the voice of the of the people and the need and yeah. and so then family drug help got funded yeah. just landing on parliament on the steps of parliament house and continuing to advocate for money that didn't fit into the boxes Yes. It was an alternative strain. Yeah. And, you know, we got wonderful friend in research who said, look, before you start doing all that, let's do some evaluative process around what we can see is really effective. And so we we had our suitcases full of good shit, you know, like <laughs> this is this is what we can do. So there's this thing here, and this is you you kind of hit you know, hit exactly on what I wanted to pull out of this, which is I reckon what's what's particularly inspiring about Shark, and I think it's it's really quite rare, is this combination of being a truly kind of community-driven response to need, but with the as you say the the suitcase part, which is that you can go to government and advocate in a way that that gets the funding, that gets the interest, that gets the um, attention to that need. Um, yes. And so I see you guys as, as sort of this translator in the system in a sense. And that's, so, so to kind of zoom out just, just quickly, there's two reasons I wanted to have you on this show here. And one is, is just kind of showing that's possible. What I see in you is this just such authentic lived experience leadership that is also extremely expert and credible and, you know, all, all those that, Yes. Those, those two things at once, the rich kind of personal experience and the ability to get shit done is probably how I would say it. So that's one kind of thing. Um, and even just, you know, I'm sure from that much that you said, the listeners will be getting a sense of that. The other th- the reason I want to have you on is also on the personal level is how as you're doing this work and in there, in the muck and in the mire of it and in the, in the particularly in the systemy bits of it, how do you maintain your well-being amongst all that? Because uh-huh. in all different ways, our listeners are, are dealing with that dichotomy, right? Like whatever role you're in, whether you're in senior sort of leadership roles or whether you're in you know, client-facing roles or whatever you're doing, there's going to be that, that tension between you know, the work you want to do and the change you want to make and also how exhausting that can be. So that's kind of where I want to take yeah. it. Yeah, okay. 
But before we get this, so so before we get that, I want, I want to take us back to, so one thing you mentioned is that you, where you came from was you were a registered nurse in terms of your professional mm. background. So I'm really curious, back then in that role, what was the dynamic between, you know, the personal shit you had going on and the work? Like was there a tension there? Was there a tension you didn't, didn't really know was there yet? What, how did that kind of interact? Look, I loved my my nursing. I think um, I've been extraordinarily lucky in my life to have loved all my parts of my professional journey. But the tension that did exist and uh, existed, you know, when I first started getting into nursing after my change was that people were diagnosed with um, labels Mm. to the point where you couldn't find the person (laughs) anymore. And the saddest thing about that was actually often the person themselves couldn't find themselves anymore. Um, And it broke my heart in, um, you know, nursing actually in the end. Well, in the end I was a bit of a mess. (laughs) (laughs) My extraterrestrial activities at (laughs) Bowen, you know, so there certainly wasn't a sort of clean head to, to be in that space, but my heart ached a lot. You know, and I would connect. Uh, I worked in disability, psych and um, general. And often I would just come home with this heartache because mm. I just kind of walked in and connected with the person who I was going to be working with as a part of a multidisciplinary team. And I felt really isolated in being the voice of advocacy for that person as a nurse you know, and I'm not against diagnosis if it's helpful, but I was seeing the person as more than just that. And that in the end um, topped with my own uh, ways of coping with life on life's terms uh, was the tipping point to get out of nursing. Um, interestingly, I'm a registered nurse again now, but uh, it was the lack of uh, seeing the human being mm. in nursing. And, and the other thing that I found in nursing workforce was, you know, there's a the Rob Gordon term, agape, it's a Greek word for love. Mm. And actually most nurses in nursing profession come into it because they have a desire to give love in their work. Yes. Really they do. Yes. Um, and they become so systemised and burnt from systems that you might look at them 20 years later and wonder where the agape's gone. Yes. I've always had this impression that nurses are kind of really, they're really where the rubber meets the road in terms of that tension you're describing between this kind of human connection and the system that can stifle that connection. Because yeah. the nurse is the one you're going to be most honest with a lot of the time compared to the doctor. But but the nurse nonetheless is is often stuck with the the, the kind of sometimes limiting framework of those boxes that you're describing. Yeah, and it's just the micro of the macro. You know, we were talking about before about how we care for ourselves when we work in a system that demands so much of us in that languaging yes. and how we um, humanise and, and relate to ourselves in that space. So as a nurse, I understood that 
um, my role was to connect with people. I didn't want to actually do things with them. I don't think in general I was a particularly good nurse. <laughs> I was a much better nurse as a community nurse because, <laughs> and I always get into trouble because I'd be sitting on people's bed having rays with them instead of, <laughs> you know, doing the nurse stuff. So I'm shocked you know, by that, Heather. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> nursing. I was much better in uh, the community nursing probably if you looked at, you know, because there's much more opportunity for connection. I, something that Gareth said on a recent episode was there's a difference between your role and your opportunity. Yeah. So so the role is, you know, the job description and the, the boundaries around that, et cetera, and the opportunity is, is the person right there in front of you in the moment that you're in. And, you know, it takes a, a lot of skill to navigate the tensions between those two things sometimes. And as you say, it can... And we've said this in past past episode of the show is sometimes it, the tension is so much you leave. Um, yeah. But what I find really interesting about your story is that that wasn't the end of the story. So can you tell us a bit about, you know, whatever the next chapter was? You you'd gone to Shark as a client. You you found that healing space, which is we use the word healing, which we yeah. don't use enough in mental health. Um, yeah. And somewhere down the track you then found yourself on this kind of leadership track and I'm I'm really curious mm-hmm. how how that was for you personally to sort of think oh did you see yourself becoming the CEO is essentially what I'm saying <laughs> well I you know I've done I've been in leadership before in my nursing roles before I became really unwell if we want to use that word yeah um and um found shark and my and my journey out of there so it's quite natural for me i like leadership i think it gives an opportunity to um have some impact Hmm. um so you know i went into working in addictions in leadership and i did that for almost 10 years in a very mainstream service um so bringing the kind of um healed me into mainstream services with the community, just trying to always build community and connection. And, and you know, to a large degree I was given a lot of scope to do that mm. in the organisation I worked for, but it was very mainstream. I called it um, vanilla. Like <laughs> it did things that fit in boxes and, you know, in a, and I was already working with how, how, how do we say a system's not, operating well and then we just top up more money to do the same thing and think we're going to make the service better so I was already starting to explore how innovation could be enabled Um, and after almost 10 years I left that I just could no longer I started to understand precious energy which we'll talk about later and I could no longer hold uh, my own balance in the system and I actually wanted to exit before I melted down. Yeah. I'd had in my heart this, this vision of creating something for nurses mm. uh, who, like me, had come to a point in their life where they were really fucked up. Mm. And what could we create for them in probably the most stigmatised area if you're a health professional to put your hand up and say I'm fucked up. I wanted to create an opportunity for that. So I left where I was and worked with some of the industry bodies and we created 
um, the Victorian Nurses Health Program, which was a program where nurses could come in from the storm mm. <laughs> um, in distressed states out of a barren environment and just be enabled to have an outbreath mm. and just allow some healing to occur. And so I did that for three years. I loved that. I set that up. We got the money. We just went and, scrimp, you know, same thing, same yeah. strategy, yeah. you know, get the see the need, get the community and just be prepared to march. Yeah. <laughs> is that something I'm just imagining nurses listening will have the ears pricking up. Is that something that is still available that they can kind of? Yeah, it's national now. And the first thing that they'll come across is a podcast of me talking about my journey. Cool. Okay. I'll grab the link off you as well and I'll see if I can chuck that yeah. in there. In the notes. Yes. So, so essentially, it seems that you are through each of these roles and kind of I'm seeing these as kind of chapters. Um, yeah, it's a good way to put it. You're essentially trying to create the thing that that you would have wanted. Is that a fair way to say it? That that's a fair way to say it. That's partial truth. And the other part of that, if mm. there is any whole truth to anything, mm. is that I could see the need in many, many people in my journey of providing addiction through a, uh, mental health and addiction treatment through a mainstream service. I met many nurses who kind of came in with um, different names, uh, absolute terror of um, being uh, revealed as having anything that might be uh, a weakness in yes. their uh, armour. Where, where do you think we're at with that now? Because uh, my impression is that that's still the case for people, for a lot of our listeners. You know, some of our listeners are in lived experience roles, which is a different thing that has its own challenges for sure. But where are we with, in terms of, you know, the mainstream roles, nurses, clinicians of all stripes, where are they with that now, do you think, that, that terror of being honest? Yeah, look, um, I think we've come a long way actually, both with doctors uh, and nurses and psychologists and, you know, if you look at APRA, which is the registration body for credentialed health professionals, um, you know, they, they were a pain in the ass when they first got their wings, but mm. they've, they've, they've totally kind of learnt how to soften a little bit into the space. And I think that has really helped nurses and doctors and that there is a, a nurses and midwives health program specifically for sensitive issues funded by DHHS yeah. and the same for the doctors. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely I, – I'm seeing these seeds and so Big Fields of Work is a, is a sort of very little – but to me, exciting example of that as well, which is essentially when we originally got funded for this, it was through a consumer innovation workforce fund, consumer workforce innovation fund rather, through DHHS. And it was, you know, a typical thing of a tiny little bit of money, which meant they were up for something different. And in our case, we originally pitched it as, hey, let's do something more for lived experience workers, like specifically mm -hmm. those in peer roles. And then... One thing I was struck by was how many people coming to us were not mostly necessarily in peer roles, like some, but mostly mm -hmm. in, in clinical roles. And and the thing I kept hearing was, one, it's bloody hard. It's hard to work in the space and, and have big mm -hmm. yourself. 
um, for reasons you've already touched on. And two, I'm, it's so lonely. Maybe there's one person I can talk to about it, but not a lot. And so, yeah, I, I see us as kind of just starting to grapple and you've obviously been doing this a lot longer than me to grapple with that experience. Cause like, why, why should that be so hard? Right? Like you'd think the mental health and addiction space would be the one place that you would bring all your shit to work. And in fact, it's probably the hardest place to do it in some ways. Yeah. I think it is the hardest place to bring bring it forward. And, you know, one of the really interesting parts of our journey was we were asked to um, help people uh, in the addiction space feel more free to come out. Mm. Uh, and we were given some funding to work with the organisations. And the organisations thought that we were there to give teach them how to do risk management um, <laughs> assessments on people. And so, the, you know, it became like uh, rather than how do we um, open our up and up and become a richer, more diverse service because of these wonderful folks with lived experience and what yes. they bring, yes. the first take on it yeah. was how do we manage the risk of them you know, those workers. But, you know, like so we worked through that and mm. uh, and now I've got to say in addictions, um, a lived experience worker, we did a recent um, consensus through our, you know, call, call to arms, if you like, through our base camp and, uh, you know, I really do believe now the worth of the lived experience workforce is being picked up and, and really valued. Um, we may be a little different in that we're smaller than the mental health, you know, it's just such a maze, you know, the yes. mental health system. I want to I want to talk about risk because, so full disclosure, we, the Big Fields Club is auspiced by Shark. So Heather and I have a, a I'd say what, three or four years now of, of a working yep. relationship where essentially we were this little weird experiment that, no one wanted to fund, <laughs> despite um, our track record and all the amazing feedback we get about what the Big Fields Club does for people. We, we didn't fit in any of the boxes, as, you, as you've sort of alluded to. Um, and so Heather helped us uh, in the initial stages find philanthropic funding and then auspicing us to kind of provide the – that's that – that wraparound of of a of a you know a, a credible pre-existing organization that could wrap around the tender little experiment that we were and i've seen you do that multiple times with multiple mm. tender little experiments so i'm, mm. I'm i want to hear a bit about that and i also the particular lens i reckon here that's interesting is the risk frame is is the frame we're swimming in, in in mental health and addictions, and so there's always there's always a reason not to do something, right? Mm -hmm. um, you've found a way to cut through that bullshit, and I'm and I'm curious. One of the things, so one of the things you said um, when we were drawing up our first auspice agreement, our first project, which was a series of um, community events and and online content for people having a hard time, two or three years back, we had to do a risk management framework, and I remember you saying. It's about finding a way to to talk the language of the funder 
and kind of you know genuinely um, address and assuage their their genuine fears without losing the magic of what you're doing in the first place. So I'm I'm curious, how can you speak a bit to that dance? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, we just we totally live in a risk adverse environment, so. Um, my understanding and what's helped us at Shark and then helped us to do what we do with amazing creative innovations like you guys brought is that life is risk mm. and and without and don't be, you know, for us we're not frightened of risk yeah. but we've learned to identify it and to say what we're going to do to, to you know, reduce it mm. immediately puts funders and, uh, you know, government entities at ease because they already know that you've identified what their head's gone 99 miles about about why to say no. Um, you've already identified why how they can say yes yep. and how by, you know, putting these things in place that's going to mean that the risk remains low. Low or light green is the colour of the month with phil philanthropy and uh, government bodies. So we we don't say there is no risk because I mean there's always risk in everything. Exactly. Yeah. So that's how we get that over the line, and it's one of the compliance things that's my headache, not yours. Yes. So, which which and, I love. I must say. Yes, and but it's my headache, not my staff either. So they're doing all this wonderful stuff uh, and part of what I do is manage that stuff. Yes. Um, because if I if they have to do it, it'll suffocate them. Yes. And I've learned through the years how to do it with minimal of my time. Yes. Funny, I put this in my witness statement actually. So I did, I've just recently submitted my witness statement to the Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health. So I had to, had to kind of really think about as part of that statement what I think would change things and one of the things I said was more more peer-run services mm. uh, more places like shark not only before the work that you're doing but because because of the work that it then means I get to do and yeah. and people like us so so these you know I want to go and make this weird little thing over here but without mm. you there's no way I could get it funded supported connected in the way I could so so that thing of this organization that itself is full of people who all just get it, you know, I come to that and just go, it's, again, it's like I said, ah, oh, I'm home. You know, <laughs> I don't yeah, have, to, yeah. I have to justify my whole worldview all over again every time we do a risk framework or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So just something that your listeners like, oh, it, sharks, we have done it at Shark because we were it. We were a small fledgling um, organic grassroots. We were that experiment. We were that experiment. Yeah, okay. and, and And as luck would have it, there were a couple of people around in that experiment who had that kind of ability to generate what's needed to generate to be safe enough to get some funding. Yes. And that grew upon itself. Um, so I think, you know, I, I feel very privileged to have spent 11 years at Chuck because of that. But, you know, it's also such when we bring people in like IPS, Big Fields and Regina Brindle Foundation and I think we're going to have another couple next year, mm. what it does to us is it's never about one, for me, partnership isn't about, 
you know, we do something for you. It's about the space we create when we, we, the new space that we create when we come together. It's like we learn and grow and we um, become enriched through that partnership and refreshed and challenged and curious and excited. That's really beautiful. And I love that in particular because it, it speaks to what, again, our listeners, whatever role you're in, there's an element of that in the work you're doing. So, so that, that, that idea, and it's been a theme on the show a little bit, that idea that you're, I would say, in relationship, right? Yeah. You're, you're not, you know, you're in whatever role you're in, sure, and you're in whatever setting and the person that comes to you is, is coming to you through whatever channel they've come to you with whatever label they happen to have, but, but essentially just in relationship. And, and this kind of moves us really nicely into the last thing I want to talk about with you today, which is this, 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 this question of looking after yourself in this work. To me, to be in, in relationship in that way with people or with, with the kind of broader system work that you guys are doing, it takes a degree of presence. Mm. And this is something that I've, that I've often noticed about you, Heather, is that you're very present and, and so what you just described of, you know, when you sit down with someone, it's not what can we do for you or not, or not what you, you do for us. It's, it's, you know, what can we learn together? To me, that's kind of a, an offshoot of that presence, that, that ability to go, okay, breathe out. What are we doing and why are we doing it today? And, and where could we go together? That curiosity you mentioned is another word that I think yeah. fits really nicely in there. So I'm just, I guess I'm curious to use that word, how how do you maintain that presence amongst amongst all the work, amongst the busyness, amongst the um, mm. sometimes often you know quite big uh, slow moving things that you're kind of uh, nudging along? How how do you maintain that kind of presence with whoever's just there right in front of you? Mm. It's a really good question, and um, you know I th- I think about my relationship with my own what I call precious energy, you know, mm-hmm. through the years of my journey. And I've always been um, a girl that gives 100% of myself. You know, I want to do it. Let's do it. It's exciting. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, and I've been like that for years. And, and what I've learned is that I lived in the red zone at the top of my capacity for years and years and years. And when life on life terms happens, we can't tell. COVID's a classic example, but let's not use it. It's too extreme. Let's use something like the cat dies. You know, life on life terms occurs and you're already at 100% of your capacity Mm. in your work and your life. Life happens. You've got to borrow energy that's not there for borrowing. So life on life's terms intervenes. I've got to have something there internally for that factor. And the other part of that that I have to reserve for myself, and this is just my way of understanding it, but I also need to know how to come home. Mm. I need some energy to get home again Mm. internally um, when when I'm out of whack Mm. Um, and I know that that requires energy too. So when I talk about precious energy, it's a two-part or a two-purpose 
allocation, mm -hmm. if we want to be mathematical yeah, about please. it. That's good. It's how do I deal with life on life's terms if I'm already at 100% of myself? Yeah. And how do I bring myself home for comfort and safety from the storm mm. if I haven't left anything to do that? So from somebody who works at all my life at 100% in the red zone, I started to see for myself where my good operating level was. And it's at about 91 if we want to be <laughs> right? And I know it so well, Panther. I know it. You know, that is where I need to operate at. Yeah. And because cats do die, the, you know, things happen in life that mm. demand of me some energy to respond that I can't predict. It's not in my diary. It's not in my yearly plan. And it just happens. Life's just like that. It, I love that. And I need to be able to get home. You yes. know, I need to be able to go to a place where I can comfort myself and, and know my own beingness, not my doingness, yes. not my human doingness, yes. but my human beingness. Yeah. So 90% of me, 91 sometimes if I'm in a hurry, <laughs> is outward in my work and in my play. Yeah. And the other 9% is for those two factors that I have no control over life on life's terms. And when that happens, I need to come home. I need something left to, to come home. It's beautiful. Isn't it? That's precious energy. Yeah. Tell me about that 9%. Like what are some of the, it's particularly the coming home part. And, I, yeah. and I'll, so my context for asking this question is very specific, which is, as we said before we started recording, I'm at that. I'm at that yeah. point where I need to come home, yeah. And, and, and I'm and I'm almost at a bit of a loss as to how. I have some theories. I have some ideas. I'm taking a break. That's something I forgot I could do. Um, yeah. Because I'm self-employed and I also work in this field. Those of you listening will will get this. It's a field that kind of never stops, right? Like there's always someone that needs help. So I kind of forgot. I'm actually allowed to book a break. Um, yeah. So I'm doing that, step one. That's good. Um, so in, yeah. a couple, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take some time off. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like, what, so what are the things you do to come home? Come home, yeah. Um, well, I have to stop doing, I have to go from being a human doing to a human being. And I have to allow my uh, self to slow down, which means exactly like you've said, I need to take a break from my diary, my mm -hmm. everyday life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I find a space, it's heart, it's not head. So, yes. you know, the driver of my coming home is heart, not head. Um, so, you know, I create the space and I just work with uh, gentle kind of things. I take my shoes off and I walk mm. in the forest mm. or, the, in, or on the beach. I get grounded into the earth again, you know. I avoid high stimulus um, I don't watch Netflix. You know, I, I, you know, I turn off the world that's stimulating and exciting. And yeah. actually, I fucking love all that stuff. Yeah. But when I need to come home, I need to uh, find my own place. I, I need to find my own place in my heart, in my life, and I need to feel the balance that enables me then to go out and do it all again. Mm. Um, it's a very personal journey. People find, you know, 
they have all kinds of ways. It, for me, it is of spirit, although I'm not a religious person, mm. but it definitely is of spirit. You know, I I talk often about rem- remember to enjoy the out-breath. You know, we're so busy <gasps> grasping for <laughs> pushing it out there, you know, like we're such output nuts, especially <laughs> excitable critters like us, yeah. right? Like, let's yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. But um, the out-breath is equally important, you know, like that balance, that enjoy the out-breath when I'm not doing, when I'm just being, you know. I, I realised as soon as I asked you the question, what do you do to come home? I was like, it's the wrong question. It's like exactly as you say, it's not, it's not about doing. In the it's moment. the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost the opposite. Yeah. I had an understanding of coming home at one point in my life where I was thinking I was doing so well. I was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning before work. I was doing artist way, meditation, yes, yes. Um, stomach crunches, <laughs> side, you know, uh, write some poems, do a journal, <laughs> go for a walk, then go to work. Yeah. And I realised that actually nothing was wrong with all of that stuff, but I was doing it at a a time when I was already in the red zone. I had no energy left. So, and I suddenly went, all this stuff I'm doing that I think is a pathway to home is actually more of the red zone. I need to do less. And you need to practice. For me, I needed to practice what doing less looked like because I didn't know what it looked like. Yes. Well, and that's where I'm at. I don't know what it, yeah. what it looks well, like. Well, you know, take your shoes off a whole lot, you know. <laughs> yeah, because it's, the for me, the human being that's at home, not the human doing. Like yeah. Yeah. the doing comes out of the being. Yeah. And if we don't spend time with the being, then the doing just becomes like, Fuel, burn it off, burn off, burn off, yeah. burn off. You know, we've got to be in the. Oh God, yes. The, we've got to be in the being to to be effective when we go out, and you know that was really significant point for me to understand that. You know, and I remember going to my therapist saying, "I'm fucking doing all this stuff, belly <laughs> crunches, you know, meditation, artist way, Julie Cameron, journaling." And, and I told her what I'd finally seen and she just cried, oh. you know, just cried. We cried together because she understood, you know, what I was saying in her own life. We, yes, exactly. And, and she, we she are was sitting this, there going, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, which often I, I, happens to me when I'm working with people too. Yeah. They give me this wonderful articulation of a learning of the heart because mm. it's like it is the heart. We spend so much time doing academic gymnastics, yeah. you know, and and stuff. And we're really familiar and good at that, most of us. But sometimes we just, just need to come home. Mm. And what happens for me, I've been doing it for so many years now, recognition of the precious energy, and I so know it for myself, that when I start missing myself, it's a longing that I can't place anywhere. Mm. It's like it's not going for a longer walk it's not it's not any doing thing I'm missing the connection with being and I need to 
just stop doing and create the space and really protect that space. I'm very protective. My people know, you know, when my staff know, oh, Heather's gone to dance with the leprechauns in Cape Trib. You know, they just know <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I love yeah. that phrase, a longing I can't place anywhere. Yeah. That, that's. I mean, I think you've just summed up the human condition, which is pretty good Pretty good for 45 minutes of chat um, to get there. <laughs> so lovely chatting with you. You know, we talked about what Shark's been able to do for you guys, mm-hmm. but you guys bring us into heart yeah. so quickly. When, yeah. when, when I just the whole, when you come in, the, the organiser, you know, the organisation's already humming with humans yeah. doing amazing and being amazing things. And when you guys come in, it was a bit like with, when IPS came into our yeah. life. Yeah. It was just, oh, yeah, these folks are, are, are <laughs> really good in this space. They really bring us something. Well, I think it's that thing you said. It's a, it's the relationship. It's, it's yeah. together we're in that present space. And and I suppose if that's kind of one last um, thing to end on, my hope is that even just listening to you talk, there's a sense of that for whoever's listening. Like I needed a bit of Heather today, so hopefully you've – You've all out there listening got got a bit of that as well. Sometimes it's just about, yeah, finding that little bit of space between humans that lets you breathe out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and feeds us too in a gentle way because mm. we're not solely responsible to create it all ourselves. Such an important thing. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Heather Picard from Shark. Thank you so much, Panther. Lovely to see you and spend time with you as always. And um, lovely to share with your listeners too. Cool. Bye.